from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Jonathan Small, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur and greenentrepreneur.com. And I am thrilled to bring you our guest today, Sally Nichols, who is president of Bloom Farms, which is a top 10 California cannabis and national hemp CBD brand. Sally was an early investor in cannabis. She started in 2014 and began investing in stakes in Bloom Farms and device makers like Pax and Juul and the delivery service Sava and several other cannabis companies. And before working in cannabis, Sally Ann worked at MTV and CNN and Interview Magazine. I got to talk to you about that. And she was part of the K-Swiss family. She's a graduate of USC. And prior to going to USC, she went to Hackney School, which is where I also went to high school. We have this in common, although she's much younger than I am. Not much, not much. <laughs> not much younger, but uh, it's kind of exciting to talk to a fellow alum from the Hackley School. And so, Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a small world that here you and I sit after growing up on, on the East Coast, you know, kind of chatting about, ca- you know, cannabis and in particular California cannabis. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so we could take a little time capsule back to the hallways of Hackley School and somebody were to tell us uh, from the future that you two are one day going to be in the cannabis space. I'd be like, what is cannabis? <laughs> I know it could be further from the lofty aisle uh, hallways of Hackley School. Exactly. The Ivy League education, and here we are selling cannabis. Yes, but, we're selling um, the real it's, Ivy. It's, it's actually, yeah, it's great. I love it. And I, I think the irony at the time was some of us may actually have been exploring with cannabis at the time saying, hmm, is this really going to be my career one day? But life is a journey, and it's it's definitely great to look back at where you start life. And Wasn't the quality that we enjoy now from like a company like Bloom Farms, I have to say, I remember being in Nathan's uh, with my first experience and completely freaking out. <laughs> It was not the best quality stuff back in those days. But anyway, let's talk about how you got into the cannabis business, because like we said, you had kind of, you know, a, a, a East Coast background and you had your husband was part of the K-Swiss organization, owned the K-Swiss organization with his family. And you were part of that as well. So tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from being at K-Swiss and all the other things you did to getting into cannabis? Well, so just quickly, as far as like my origin stories, I believe that cannabis is a great space for me on many levels. It, looking back, you know, even to the Hackley days and as a kid, one of the things I excelled at and, and really loved doing was building something out of nothing. And, you know, whether that's the proverbial, you know, lemonade stand or the variety of things I started as a kid, all the way up to, you know, graduating from USC. And the very first thing I did when I graduated from USC was start my own business. At the time, I built one of the first online children's networks. This is back when CompuServe was bigger than AOL. So I hate to date myself, but it really was that long ago. And what I've really always loved is disrupt. At the time, it wasn't called this, but we now know it's disruptive spaces, spaces that are wide open based on my ability to kind of build something out of nothing. So fast forward, I graduated from USC, started, you know, my first my first company. It was a nonprofit at the time and, and then just kind of serially became an entrepreneur. I lived in Los Angeles for 27 years, uh, dipping in and out of entertainment, fashion, sports. And you, know, you can't really live in California without being familiar with the California cannabis culture and the heritage. And I'd be lying if I saying I, if I said I wasn't also a consumer at the time, you know, growing up in college at USC and spending summers following the Grateful Dead and going to Banjam after Banjam, you just realize it's just part of it's just part of 
the culture in California. So really the, the foundation is just this desire to build something and create and to create something most importantly out of nothing. And it's a really different skill set to take an idea from paper and then to build it and scale it and execute it. And so my personal professional history has really always been geared around doing that initially in the high tech space with gaming companies that we created online, companies that I created, pharmaceutical software companies, et cetera, et cetera. And I did all of this with David and, and case with in some cases in the background. So here I had the benefit of seeing a billion dollar brand company that we as a family acquired you know, in the 80s for maybe $11 million, grew it, took it public, grew it some more to, you know, a billion dollar valuation, then eventually sold it. And it was really easy to see and easy to compare the startup world from the established business world. And you start to realize the things that connect the two are the ability to create a brand and the ability to scale. And so every business that I looked at, whether I was starting it from scratch or I was entering an early stage startup was, do you have the infrastructure and ability to scale? And do you have a brand promise and a product that people care about? And so it's really with that lens that I entered the cannabis space. You know, I mean, there's a wide open space from a legal perspective, you know, and when, when we were moving from 1996 medical marijuana legal in California up into recreational um, legalization. And it was really clear to me that the same opportunity existed in cannabis. If brands could build an infrastructure and a brand promise that could be delivered at scale, those brands would win, much like Case was one. So it's been a very exciting ride. And I think that one of the interesting parts of, of pivoting to cannabis for me, having been in high-tech startups, is that there was an existing consumer base and we weren't changing habits. Early in high-tech, there was no consumer for the things you were doing. You had to create, you had to change behavior to get people to adopt the new technology. And, you know, behavior change takes a long time and attracting new customers takes a long time. What was beautiful about cannabis and what still remains, you know, one of the brightest, one of the biggest promises of cannabis is that there is a built-in consumer base and you are not changing people's behaviors. You might shift it here and there. They might try an edible or they might try a vape or they might go back to pre-rolls or flour. But ultimately, the familiarity with cannabis as a medicinal and recreational product was already deeply embedded in culture and deeply embedded in users. That's interesting to, to think of it that way. It's, it's a very, you know, they, people often equate the dot-com boom with the cannabis boom, but it, it, is, it is different. And also the dot-com implosion with what we were thinking might be the cannabis implosion shortly before COVID hit. But do you see a similarity kind of between the two industries? I know you've been in the two industries. Yeah, I definitely see some similarities. I mean, I, I definitely, I could see and feel the pressure building in the space as that kind of bubble was growing, right? New investors were coming in, companies were being pressured for growth at all expense, kind of opportunistic sales strategies just to put money on the books to then turn around and inflate your value. And there was just in the California market in particular, because it is it remains the single most competitive legal market in the world, there was just this kind of this pressure for growth that I saw in, in the high tech space also. And there was an opportunism. What I think is so interesting about this technology versus cannabis is that technology had all the benefits of banking and general business structure where we have none of that. And where we are actually quite dissimilar is when I started first talking about the real benefit is the ability to grow and deliver a brand promise at scale. In the modern world, 
doing that at scale requires technology. It requires financial infrastructure technology, operational technology, distribution technology, supply chain management. All of those things now are digital processes. There are electronic processes that happen you know, through software applications, cloud-based systems. We had none of that available to us. We had none of it available to us because we were we were essentially selling federally legal products, even though it was legal in California or in Colorado, whatever market you were in, it was still federally legal. So we couldn't use any of the basic business technologies and infrastructure that any other startup would use, whether it was, you know, the high tech or toothbrushes. So we really had to create absolutely everything from scratch. I mean, at one point we tried to use some of the big companies for financial services, you know, whether it was in like a NetSuite or or SaaS database technologies. And we'd get just about to the point that we started implementation and those companies pulled the plug. And it made it very, very hard to scale. You know, they all said, we can't touch you guys, your cannabis. We can't track your money and we can't track your product. We'll lose our federal charter. So the similarities in the two space was really just like the rush for opportunity, the rush to open space. You can look at companies that we can all probably name that had a similar pump and dump strategy where they would grow grow their business, go public in the Canadian market and, and, and harvest, harvest as much cap, cash as they could. So those were similar between high tech and cannabis, but the big differences were with very, very limited tools for infrastructure and for scaling infrastructure, which in some cases has um, in the beginning really held held co- the companies back. What did you do? How did you get around all those limitations? Well, I mean, the good news was having come from a high tech background, it was abundantly clear to me that we needed the technology in order to optimize the business. So we were just super gritty. And we dug and dug and dug and dug until we found a solid financial accounting system, which tied into an inventory management system. We built compliance process around it. And we did, we kind of had to combine systems to get what is what is still in California, a best of breed digital infrastructure for inventory management and finance. So we just had to prioritize it, right? And the hardest thing for a startup to do when you're, you know, trying to make product and you're trying to, you know, grow sales and trying to lobby for regulatory reform, the hardest thing for a company to do is to stop and say, what is the single most important thing we need to do over the next 12 months in order to be prepared for regulation or in order to be prepared for the next round of cannabis changes? And we, we did that exercise in 2016, and we decided that the single most important thing we needed to do was build a technology that could scale to 10x. So that when the market arrived, we had the infrastructure in place. So we prioritized it. And it's interesting because when you start looking at why one company succeeds over another, it really just becomes, where do you put your attention? What do you prioritize? And what is your, you know, what is your goal as a business? And so our ability to scale and support a brand in California that could then sell CBD globally, which we do right now, required that we build that infrastructure. And we did, and I'm very, very glad we did. And you're, while you were building that infrastructure, you know, you're also a brand expert. And you mentioned the importance of brand. And that always strikes me when I go to these, back in the old days when people actually mingled and I would go to all these cannabis conventions and see all these different brands, all selling basically the same thing, right? Maybe different qualities of the same thing. And it's like, how did you at Bloom Farms break out and stand out from all the rest of your competitors? 
It's a great question. And building a brand is really hard. And I will say one thing quickly, the technology infrastructure that we put in place enabled us to build the brand because it enabled us to deliver at scale down to our retailers. And at some point you have to look at yourself and say, okay, who are my customers? And at any given point, we have three customers. We have, a, we have supply chain customers, we have retail customers, and then we have end consumer customers. And so the technology has been critical in our ability to do what we say we're going to do, when we're going to do it, and do it flawlessly. And that is one of the first pillars in, in building a brand, you know? And so my famous brand quote still comes from Alexander Hamilton, right? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. And we knew early on at Bloom Farms that, you know, we knew who we were early on. We knew what we cared about. We knew that, that customer service and quality product and changing, changing the stereotype around cannabis was critical. And that with a state the size of California, we would need technology infrastructure to effortlessly, efficiently, and cost-effectively do that. So one of the first ways we established Bloom Farms as a brand was by doing what we say we're going to do. And that is very simple, showing up at retail with the product people ordered at the price they ordered it from at exactly the time they asked us to be there. And it sounds like such an easy thing, but when people can't, when, when brands and companies don't really know how much inventory they have at any given point, right? And you don't really know where all your product is and you don't really know, you don't really have an organized structure for delivering down to your brand and you know, your brand partners. It's a lot harder. So that was a big piece of it, right? Having the ability to deliver at scale required technology. And I think that's the primary component of brand. But I think another big piece of brand for Bloom Farms, and this is part of one of our core values. And, you know, we have we roughly have six core values. We live and breathe them. They, they run everything we do. But one of our fundamental principles is we, we believe as a company that it is our responsibility as a company to make the world a better place. And so we do that through our relation, the relationships we have with our supply chain, our relationships with retailers, our relationships with customers, and most importantly, our relationships inside the communities that we operate in. So we started from day, almost from day one, we started a meal program for food insecurity. And we see cannabis ultimately as an agriculture product. So being rooted in agriculture, you realize that there's high food insecurity in agriculture towns. There's poverty in those towns and the ability to have a healthy meal is really limited. So the first thing we did is put together our one-for-one -one meal program, which is a foundation of the brand today. For every product someone buys from Bloom Farm, we buy a meal for a food insecure family delivered through one of our food network partners across California. And as of, I think, November, December of last year, we'd served over 2 million meals to food insecure families um, in California and at the time, Nevada. So the commitment to be a good actor wasn't just, you know, we're going to write a check or it wasn't just we're going to say we're going to do something. We knew that being a good actor required us to, which is a component of the brand, required us to deliver at scale to our retailers, deliver quality. And it required us to be a good actor in the communities we operate in. So those are the beginning pieces of a brand. Do what you say you're going to do and make your word impeccable. And then the products follow behind that, right? So definitely harder to build a company this way, but I think it pays off in the end. It paid off. Yeah. And you obviously have a lot of transparency about what's in your products, the quality of your products. You know, we had talked earlier before we got on this interview about VapeGate last year's had really shaken the cannabis industry to the core because people were getting sick from vapes. But we realized that all of those vapes that people were getting sick from were from the illicit market. But you, you have an interesting perspective on VapeGate. I'd love you to share it because you see, even though it was obviously not a great thing, public relations wise for the industry, 
there is a silver lining to it. And tell me a little bit about that. So obviously nobody wants nobody wants anybody getting sick off any product. But what we all realized quickly was, to your point, the product that people were getting sick on was coming out of the illicit market. It was coming out of unregulated street drugs. And when you look at vape, vape is a, is a form factor, right? It, it, vape doesn't mean marijuana. Vape doesn't mean nicotine. Vape is a form factor, much like a truck, right? A truck does different things than a car does. But if someone gets hit with a truck, do you ban all trucks? No, you look to yourself and say, okay, who was driving the truck? What were they doing in the truck? What was, you know, what were the other circumstances going on? So we all learned quickly with VapeGate that vape as a form factor isn't the problem. The problem is what are you vaping? And the illicit dirty product is what was creating the challenge. But the silver lining in VapeGate was it really heightened people's awareness about the value of a regulated cannabis industry. And that while you're paying more to buy regulated cannabis, in some cases in California, I think it's it's upwards of 30% more than what you're buying from street products, primarily driven by the tax structure and the expense of running a compliant business, but it's still 30% more. But with that 30%, high testing, high quality, a significant level of oversight on the business, and ultimately a much more consistent, dependable, safer experience for consumers. So the part of the silver lining was the education about why regulated product matters and why all of the states in the U.S. should be pushing for regulated cannabis businesses. Some of the bigger vape gate issues were in states that don't have, that either have only super limited medical cannabis or no cannabis whatsoever. So highlighting a regulated market was was critical. I think the other thing that VapeGate did, and we would have never known it at the time, but fast forward now to COVID. So when states were trying to decide what an essential business looks like, the experience with VapeGate, I think, informed a lot of regulators that if you are to close down cannabis dispensaries now, not only are you cutting people off from the medicine and the medicinal value that drove legalization to begin with, and you're cutting people off from their medicine, but you'd be pivoting people back to the illicit market at a time when now more than anything, what you need is, um, you know, you need safe product. I think the essential business status also quickly shined a light on the economic benefit of having cannabis in your state. You know, New York was on was on the brink of, of move, is still on the brink of moving into a recreational cannabis model. And let me tell you, all these states as a result of cannabis have, but as a result of COVID, have a budgetary shortfall. And now they're all looking, what's going to be, what's going to be the industry to make up the difference? And so, you know, having a regulated cannabis industry is, is, is something that they're all kind of have fast-tracked, at least fast-tracked discussions on. So the silver lining ultimately was elevating the conversation around a legalized cannabis program across the country. Are we organized as companies like Boom Farm, the big companies, are you guys organized in getting the attention of these local governments? You know, because at this point, it's about state legalization until until even the conversation of federal legalization, you know, it probably won't be happening until after the 2020 election. But I always wonder how organized are we as an industry in getting the attentions of these states that, that don't even have don't even have medical marijuana legal in their states. And do you think we're a force politically? Well, yes, that's an excellent question. And I found myself thinking about that same thing when, um, you know, early on in COVID, when, you know, we were on the, the brink of making changes in New York. And I think the answer to that is twofold. As a brand, Bloom Farms is very involved on the regulatory framework. You know, we were very involved in, in drafting and, and editing the regs in California. And we were able to, alongside other big brands, shift the thinking around a three-tier system and allow for self-distribution. And so in California, we made, I think, on many levels, great progress in creating 
regulations that worked for consumers and brands, local communities, and state tax situations. On a national level, I don't see that level of organization and speaking with one voice, primarily because we are all working so hard to keep the businesses that we have growing and most importantly, optimizing them and working towards break even. And every single state has a different level of political, economic, and social motivation around cannabis. So as much as cannabis can be a national platform, it is also very much a state and local platform. If you take California as a state and you magnify it, it kind of acts like the, the federal government would, right? You've got the thing, they've got the motivations of your of your state-based government actors, their needs, their I hate to say it, but some of their palms need to be greased and they need to be highly educated about the process. And then it trickles down right down to the community level where you ultimately get the first part of your license to operate. So I don't think that there's a good enough structure for a national rollout. And when people ask me, hey, don't you want federal legalization? Wouldn't you be excited for that? My answer right now is no. I have zero interest in federal legalization. I think federal legalization would hopscotch over two important things that would need to happen first. And we'd be throwing way too much in an industry that is already already kind of struggling to deliver. We have two good steps we could make are around banking and around, around interstate commerce. I mean, the fact that California should be able to, Bloom Farms as a brand should be able to sell the exact same product, much like Coca-Cola in New York. We should have one formula that always works the same. And if we're, if we're not allowed to move our product across state lines, then we are creating startups in every single state we operate in. And that's, um, that's inefficient. So if we were to change banking and change interstate commerce, I think the conversation after that would be federal legalization because we'd have structure in place. You think we're getting close to changing the banking and the interstate commerce, the Safe Banking Act and all that stuff? What's your take on that? Well, I certainly think that the rioting and looting around Black Lives Matter showed the weakness in the cash structure of cannabis. Dispensaries and cannabis businesses became targets at a time when we as a culture couldn't afford it. And unfortunately, those kind of crimes of opportunity really impacted some people in the space pretty heavily. If we had banking, dispensaries wouldn't necessarily be a target for the cash. It might be a target for the product, just like a jewelry store. But these companies were a target because they had safes and the safes had money in them. We have no other place to put money, most of us. We have banking, so we are unusual in that capacity. But most cannabis companies, by far, most cannabis companies do not have access to banking. Were you guys a target of looting and that kind of stuff during? No, we were not. But our retailers were. So our philosophy is if one of us gets attacked, then ultimately we all get attacked, right? Because we are a very small ecosystem in California. So it's very, very hard to watch. I think it was particularly hard to watch some of the businesses that are owned by people of color who have been social activists and cannabis activists and incredible business people. To watch their businesses get looted was heartbreaking. Yeah. I had one on my show a few months uh, last month um, in Boston, Kobe Evans. Uh, yeah, he was looted during the Boston. So yeah, it was tragic. And he has such a great attitude towards it because he really doesn't blame the um, protests, he really separates it in his mind, and they were opportunists, and that's true. Is, is Kobe? Is Kobe with pure? Is he pure oasis? Is that Kobe? Same Kobe? Oh, gotcha. Yeah, no, definitely has a great reputation for sure. All right, so I'm going to bring up a um, bit of an elephant in the room. I know there was some news about a lawsuit against Bloom Farms from a former board member investor in the company, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, respond to that publicly. 
Sure, sure. Well, as I'm sure you can imagine, I can't say much about the litigation as it is ongoing. However, the two rulings to date have been in Bloom Farm's favor, but there are aspects of the suit that are still in the courts and we want to handle it there. Anyone that knows Bloom Farms knows we've really worked hard to run the most ethical, compliant and community oriented business in the cannabis space. That's what our brand is built on. And it's just as true for our business and our operations and management as it is for our products. But I will say this, while while I can't really talk in detail about the case itself, I do think there's some important learning that might benefit others in the cannabis industry uh, as it relates to investors. Well, yeah, do tell that 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 would be very helpful. Yeah. So when I look back over the, the you know several years that Bloom Farms has been you know has been in business and both being an investor myself and sitting inside a company that's received investment, you know we all know that this kind of cannabis green rush brought. A lot of interest from investors, many with no prior experience in cannabis. I would say actually most had no prior experience in cannabis as it's based on the legalities. Some of these investors had a genuine interest and something to contribute to the space out of the gate. Others had a lot of experience in other industries like wine, alcohol, pharmaceuticals, consumer goods, maybe even technology. But with that also came their own belief system that the knowledge they had in their previous industry would translate easily to cannabis. And that may may have been true, but in other cases, it really requires a lot of time to learn this space. And then I also think that there were others that were in the green rush just quickly for a buck. But I think a lot of cannabis companies had mixed experience with their investors early on and even now. And as a result, um, especially more recently, as valuations in the cannabis for cannabis companies fell and investors who, who were brought into the industry at the peak without a real understanding of how challenging the industry is, you know, became really uh, frustrated, disenfranchised, disillusioned, and um, in some cases, litigious. I think the takeaway for cannabis companies is really the importance of vetting your investors. And by that, I mean, classically, you think of vetting your investors as determining do they have the net worth to invest and are they willing to comply with the terms of your your investment and the operating agreement. But the next step I think you really have to take is understanding, really trying to understand their motivations and their expectations and getting to know what they're like to work with, looking into the history of other investments they've made, look for litigation histories with those investors, broader behavior patterns or personal opportunism that tend to play themselves out, you know, regardless of the company or the industry that they're investing in. And there's a handful of questions that I've kind of started to put together myself when I'm advising, you know, smaller companies or, or even thinking about where we are at Bloom Farms. And I mean, just to kind of share some of the questions with you. One of the most important ones is what is an investor's expectation for the timing and size of their return on their investment? Cannabis is still federally illegal. And so looking for fast transactions and, and transition liquidity moments, isn't they're not as readily available in cannabis as they are in other industries. So understanding their timing and what they're expecting on uh, return on their investment is important. I think it's also, are they willing to invest the time to really dig in and understand the unique characteristics of this industry and your particular business? And you know, one of the big warning signs that I that I see sometimes with investors is, well, I saw this in in pharmaceuticals, so I think it will apply to cannabis. And maybe 60% of the time it does, but the 40% that it doesn't line up is actually where we find cannabis to be pretty challenging. 
I think another important question is, you know, are investors trying to leverage their investment in your company to help create a perception of their overall cannabis experience for maybe another business that they have or another industry that they've been involved in? So their investment in you, their entree into bringing their expertise from cannabis in and building legitimacy for it on maybe on the back of the success you've had with your company. But maybe the most important question is, is this someone I want to invest my time in educating about cannabis so that I can benefit from the expertise they have? Are they bringing not just smart money to the table, but are they bringing their true commitment, a sense of humility, and a desire to roll up their sleeves and learn about the space? So in truth, we found many long-term investors in cannabis who were not knowledgeable about the space, but who have worked hard alongside us and have brought a lot of value to us. So when I kind of offer these comments, it's not necessarily tied to Bloom Farms in general, but I, you know, do have a lens inside other companies and other investments. And, you know, they're just really good things to keep in mind. Yeah, for sure. It's a nascent industry and we're all learning, but you have such a wealth of experience from the past that these are, these are really good lessons that you've learned over the years. And so thanks for that. Let's change gears a little bit here and talk about you know, you're sort of an expert in this space, not sort of, you are an expert in this space. You've seen so many different sort of trends come and go within cannabis. And I'm just wondering where you see some opportunities for the future. You know, if you were a company that's already existing or a company of people that want to get into the business, what are some of the sectors of cannabis that you see growing now that, that you get excited about? Well, obviously we're super excited about CBD and the hemp derived line. And one of the reasons we're excited about it is it enables us to have a conversation about cannabis, albeit hemp, in a global fashion within the range of Bloom Farms as a brand. So one of the spaces we really love is CBD. I will qualify that by saying it is a highly congested space. A lot of the product in that space is coming out of China. It doesn't deliver the benefits that most people are expecting it to deliver because it's poor quality, unregulated, blah, blah, blah. However, because this is our Valley Wick and we've been doing it, we've been working with both CBD on the hemp side and with cannabis for many, many years. It's a natural fit for us and the products that we put out are beyond exceptional. They're rooted in science and experience and a highly, highly refined product definition. And we are very excited about that space and excited about our brand in the space. And you're able to sell that outside of California. You're allowed to be global with, with cannabis, right? As opposed, I mean, with uh, CBD as opposed to cannabis, where you're kind of, like you said, you're kind of stuck in one state, given the way the the system is set up right now. Yes. I mean, what, it, what hemp, the hemp-derived CBD product enables us to do is really provide brand, the brand experience at scale across the country and across the globe. It's, and we're only putting out products that are within the guidelines of current FDA regulations. So we're super restrictive about what we do. We don't do edibles. We're really kind of buttoned up and narrow in the products that we offer. But what's also been super interesting for me is we assume that we are a California cannabis company and we are very, very well-known cannabis brand. I think there's 1,100 cannabis companies in California and Bloom Farms is routinely a top 10 selling brand you know, dating back to 2014, 15, 16. And it's not easy to do that, but we do, we are aware that we have a certain level of brand awareness in California. We really didn't know what was going to happen when we started moving our brand into other states that don't have Bloom Farms products and with customers that don't really understand who we are, what we stand for. What I was shocked at is how many people already know who we are. 
before we ever had a product in, in, on the shelves, you know, for example, in Michigan or in Massachusetts or in New York. And so we would call shops to open up those shops for CBD. And they're like, oh my gosh, you bloom farms like the California bloom farms. And we opened the door, you know, we opened that door in, in, in six seconds. How do you think that was that they knew about, they just knew about the brand from, because it's big in California and California is such a huge market. And you think that's how they knew about it? I think that's part of it. I think ultimately California brands are very, very sexy and, and they have global appeal. Everybody wants kind of California cannabis heritage when it comes to a product. We have street cred in that capacity. But we also, to be honest, have told very compelling stories about cannabis outside of California. We have an amazing relationship with Rolling Stone. We have a solid relationship with Vogue. We get great coverage around our one-for-one program, our meal program, and and the level of uh, social corporate social responsibility that we have, you know, overall. And so we have great press. We have great social media. We have a great product. And so I think all of those things touch people at different points. And also think that people love visiting California. And I think that cannabis, legal cannabis in California, created a level of tourism. And people came to California just to be able to buy it. So we kind of have the advantage of great shelf space. And so if you're coming to California, if you're coming to LA or San Francisco, and you're going to some of the first dispensaries closest to the airport or ones in the sexiest neighborhoods, chances are, you know, we're on the shelf. So there's that, you know, that kind of plays into it. Well, Sally, this has been fascinating. I I feel better about my high school education, knowing that it produced scholars such as yourself and, and smart people such as yourself. Maybe it was worth all that money. I think if we went back to the head, headmaster and said, guess what you've prepared me to do in life? <laughs> that kind of Ivy League prep school guy may not have been so pleased with, with uh, our future trajectory. But Exactly. I don't want to get into who our headmaster was, but let's just say, well, we can get into who our headmaster was. His son is now the attorney general of our- Oh my God. I know. I don't want to- I know, which is hard to believe. But anyway, it was a wonderful place. Keith Olbermann went there as well. But listen, it's been wonderful catching up with you and so fascinating to hear what you're up to. And I hope you'll come back and tell us more about what Bloom Farms is doing. If people want to find out more about Bloom Farms, where do they go? They go to your website? What should they what should they do? I mean, they've got our website, they have social media. We have two different websites. One's for the CBD line, it's bloomfarmscbd.com. We have another one for the cannabis side of our business, that's getbloomfarms.com. Then we have our, you know, our social media, which is, you know, Instagram and Facebook. What I would recommend actually is signing up for our emails because we send out a tremendous amount of great information, not just information about products, but information about cannabis, about cannabis culture, about California cannabis history. And they're just, I actually like getting them. We have an amazing head of content and, and social media. And I'm, I'm always delighted at what, what ends up showing up in my inbox. So it's actually a great way to learn about us and a great way to learn about California cannabis. Well, thank you again. Great talking to you. Thank you. Are you kidding? This has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later. 